0: Amen. so we are going to get into our Easter message this morning, and I'm so uh, just celebratory because one year ago, on Easter of 2022, we celebrated our very first service here in our new facility at Caring Way, which was a wonderful day. and it's amazing to see and and Reflect on all God has done, even in just the last 12 months. The people that He has brought, the lives that have been transformed and changed, the fruit that's coming out of everything that's going on, and yet there is this deep place in me that says it's only just begun. It's only just begun, and God has so much more to do. When we uh, came together a year ago for our Easter service we had actually been in a series for a few weeks, and that series was called The Final Week. We actually took a number of Sundays and we talked about many of the events that happened during the final week of Jesus' life, which was incredible because there's so much that happens in that period of time. It's, it's very difficult to unpack it just in a single sermon. Today, where we're going to go and where we're going to focus in on is not necessarily the final week of Jesus' life, but I'd like to talk to you today about the final words, the final statements that Jesus made while he was hanging on the cross. The title of the message this morning is Mercy Spoke. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for everything that you have done for us. And we invite you now. Holy Spirit, move in this place. Each and every one of us in our own way, God. As we come to you and yield whatever it is that you want to do in these moments. I pray that you would speak through me. And God, that the message of your word and your truth would come forth so sharp and so accurate, so penetrable. God, that it would minister to every single human heart that's here. That you would let them know that you are real and that you love them in a profound way. And I come against any distraction or any evil or foul spirit. That might be here or attempting to hinder the work that you would want to do in someone's life. We come against the spirit of religion, the spirit of bitterness. We come against any kind of distracting spirit that would try to take someone's heart and mind in a different place today. And we ask you God till that soil of our heart and make it fertile ground to receive the seed of your implanted word, that it may take root in our lives and it may grow healthy and vibrant to produce an abundant crop in our future. And we thank you so much for that today. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. So we will talk about the final words of Jesus on the cross. When we read through the Gospels, the four Gospels, all giving different accounts of Jesus' life ministry in these moments, we'll see that we can really account for, in Scripture, seven different statements that Jesus makes. And there is something I think you would probably agree with me uh, that just adds a measure of weight and impact when we think about the final moments and the final words that someone has to say before they pass on from this earth. How many of you, just out of curiosity, have ever had the opportunity to sit with someone or be with someone in the final moments or hours of their life? It really is one of those heavy moments. There's a lot of sadness and mourning, but often there is a lot of celebration and beauty and it isn't that all the words of that person's life are less important it's just that there's something more weighty about the words that they're sharing in those moments do you understand what i'm saying and so all of scripture all of the bible we know it tells us is god's word to us in fact paul says to timothy all scripture is given By inspiration of God, it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness that the man of God or woman may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Works So the totality of Scripture is all of God's life. It's all of His words. Inspiration means to be God-breathed. So when we read His Word, we are essentially taking in the very life and breath of God. He is exhaling and we are inhaling. And so the entire Word of God is full of life and transformation. I say all that just to pave the way and where we're going today to say that everything is significant, but I want you to look at it from a contextual perspective that these final statements that Jesus makes are happening while he's hanging on the cross, suffering and dying for you and I, and getting ready to complete the work that he was sent to this earth to do. So, statement number one let's go to Luke chapter 23, verse 24. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Father, forgive them, for they do do not know what they do. If you've been in Sunday school or you've been in church before, you've probably heard this statement. This is probably not totally unfamiliar to you, but I want to peer into it for a moment in a fairly deep way if we can. I want you to think about the fact that Jesus is praying for those who are killing him. He's not just praying for people who are opposed to him, who are faceless names. We have we all have that those kinds of people in our our lives probably. But Jesus is literally praying for the people who are killing him while they're killing him. I say again, mercy spoke. Wow. You know, God is interested in doing a very deep work in each and every one of us. He's interested in transforming us more and more into his image and into his likeness. This is not something we will ever perfect or fully attain, certainly But it is a process and a change, nevertheless, that we would want to embrace while we walk with Him. And so we could say that as we walk closely with Christ throughout our days, that our life would become more and more a reflection of Jesus' life. And I think part of the deep work that God wants to do in each and every one of us, guys, is that He wants to help us grow to a place where we truly can pray for our enemies. Not just because we know we have to and do it resentfully. Perhaps we begin there, but that's certainly not the place God is calling us to. Because when we can really pray for those who are harming us and in our heart genuinely desire God to release a blessing over them. Church, I just want to suggest to you that there might not be a more free place that you can live. (laughs) Because bitterness and offense can never get a hold of your heart. And we know that that is a deep bondage that people fall into all the time. I'll read this to you in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 17. It says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. This is one of those verses that's always kind of messed with me. Because I know God is sovereign and He's all-powerful, but yet at the same time, this is telling me that if I am not praying for those who are harming me, if I am wishing ill will toward them, or I have bitterness in my heart towards them, that it's possibly affecting, interfering with God really dealing with everyone in that situation the, one that he, the way that He wants to. Are you with me? I want to bring my heart to a place where I can really... Let go of all that. It's also a work of trust because we begin to see and trust that God really means what He says when He says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And He says, when you pray for your enemies and you really mean it, then you allow me to do what I need to do to be the perfect judge. But when you pray for your enemies' good things and blessings, He says that you actually heap coals of fire on their heads. And perhaps someone you know is seeing you pray for them and they ask, what are you doing? And you say, I'm heaping coals of fire on your head. <laughs> I think you understand what I'm saying is that it, it's one thing to say this in word. It's another thing for this, to really, this work to really be done deep down in our heart. And the last thing I would say to this before we move on to the next statement is to just keep this in mind that perhaps you've handled this well and I commend you because not many do. But perhaps you've handled this well and you would say, I've let the Lord do a work in me. Just don't forget that there'll be many more occasions in your future to slip up as God raises you to a place of influence because the more influence God gives us, the more vulnerable we become to getting hurt. Statement number two, we will go to Luke 23, verse 43. And Jesus said to him, this is to the thief on the cross, Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, Beautiful words. We know the Bible tells us there were actually two thieves on the cross. Only one heard these words. Today you will be with me in paradise. We know that that thief confessed Jesus as the Son of God. Basically asked Him for forgiveness in his final moments. There's this... Pretty powerful picture really when we look at this that I think kind of speaks to all of our lives is there's really this kind of dichotomy that hangs in the balance. We have one who will die rejecting Christ and we have one who will receive Christ in his final moments and in his final breath and the eternal outcome will be drastically different for the two. (laughs) The doctrine of heaven and the doctrine of hell are both very real. That's the essence of the work on the cross is that it saves us from eternal damnation and it actually ushers us into eternal blessing in paradise. If that be the case, then frankly, the gospel is the most important news that anyone could ever hear. And so these thieves are hanging on the cross and what's incredible to me is that they are guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt they are guilty of their crimes and their punishment and their sentencing is just according to those laws of that land yet jesus is hanging on the cross with them and he is entirely innocent folks this is what we would consider to be a picture of in theological terms the great exchange His innocence paid a price so that our guilt could be exchanged for forgiveness. The thief on the cross probably had done some terrible things and horrible things throughout his life. But there's a wonderful picture here as well that shows us that no matter what we've done in our lives, no matter how far we've erred, that we are never too far gone. To be outside the reach of God's grace and outside the reach of His forgiveness. Scripture tells us that the arm of the Lord is never too short to be able to save. When I look at this verse, I think a lot about how Jesus was willing to die for people like that thief on the cross, just like he was for me. I think it's good for all of us to see humanity people, those who we like and those who rub us like sandpaper, to see all people as people who Jesus considered were worth dying for. It always irks me when someone has a self-righteous attitude and they look down their nose at someone else as if their sin is a greater sin than the ones they've committed. I think this picture of the thief on the cross that Jesus forgives and welcomes into paradise is a powerful reminder for us. Because one day, those of us who know Christ, when we go on to be with Jesus in heaven, he'll be there too. He'll be there too. No one is too far from God's saving grace. And, and maybe you're here today and you needed to hear that right there. Maybe that was what you came for was to hear and understand and know that no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've drifted, no matter how bad you think it is, and you may have made a great mess of things, we can do that. But God, His grace and His forgiveness is available today for you if you will receive that. And you can leave here not carrying the weight and burden of shame and condemnation of the things that you may have done there's freedom for you too let me say it that way statement number 3 John 19, 26 and 27 when Jesus therefore, therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by he said to his mother woman behold your son and then he said to the disciple behold your mother and from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. So in these final moments, Jesus is essentially making sure that he is entrusting the care of his mother Mary to one of his disciples, John. And we can assume, we can deduct from Scripture, guys, that At this point, Jesus's earthly father, Joseph, has passed away. We see Joseph in the story when Jesus is 12, but from 12 till about 30 years old, when Jesus' ministry begins, we look at those, they're called the hidden years. And when Jesus' ministry begins, Joseph never re enters the story. And so we would deduct that he's passed on that mary is a widow and this is important why i tell you that is because it was part of jewish culture that the oldest son the oldest child would make sure that the parents were taken care of and watched over and especially if the mother was a widow that firstborn son would make sure her needs were met provided for and she was always cared for and jesus Even in his dying moments, think about this, is concerned with the principles and precepts of God's law. You see, we are not bound by the law, but we are compelled to obey God's laws because of the grace that he's given us, our hearts desire to serve him. Jesus perfectly models obedience, even in his final moments on the cross, making sure That his mother is provided for. I also think it's interesting that he didn't have his brothers do that. I don't know if you ever thought about that. But he's got brothers. Why are they not the ones entrusted to Mary's care? This is what I think the answer to that is. It's because at this point we know that Jesus' brothers are not following him. They don't believe in him yet. They don't come to the point of confession until after the resurrection of Christ. So I think Jesus is also establishing a pretty important priority. You see, and there are a lot of factors that determine the people that we entrust great responsibility to in our lives. But I think the single most important thing is that they know Jesus Christ and they are following him and being led by his spirit. Katie and I have had many talks and conversations about if something happened to us, God forbid, while our kids were still young, who would we entrust their care to and how would we go about that, you know, legally and how you draw all that stuff up? And just telling you, for us, the most important things were one, that they wouldn't be separated from each other and two that they would be raised in the house of God. I'm just telling you, church, that priorities and responsibilities when it comes to who you are entrusting great things in your life to, I would, I would be very prayerful and considerate about the relationship that those people have with the Lord and that they are being led by the Spirit of God. Amen? Amen. And then the last thing I would say to there is, if young people, if you're here and you're listening to this, make sure you take note. You better take care of your mama. All right? You better take care of mama. Uh, you know, one last thing here that it really jumps out at me, too is I love that John finds himself here at the cross. You think about this? He's in harm's way. The disciples are being threatened. Now, we know Peter ends up getting all restored and does great things. But in this moment, Peter ain't looking so good. He's hiding from Jesus and denying him in these moments. John's here at the foot of the cross. Hmm. Love endures. Love never fails. John is willing to stand with Jesus even if it means it may cost him his life as well. And I would say to you today, folks, if you're here, that I know we live in a fairly comfortable, convenient culture in the Western world, but Jesus is absolutely looking for those on the face of the earth who will stand with Him and for Him even if the world is coming against them. That is a faith that is tested and a faith that is true. Amen. Amen? Amen. Next statement. Go to Matthew chapter twenty-seven, verse forty-six. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli Ili Lama sabachthani," that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is Jesus saying this? Why does he feel forsaken in this moment by the Father? Scripture tells us that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might know the righteousness of God. The reason why Jesus is saying, why have you forsaken me? The reason he feels forsaken. Guys, and it is a bit of a mystery, I admit, for me, to even peer into this kind of truth and thing. But Scripture leads us well in it. And the reason is, is because as Jesus hung on that cross, he somehow became the sin of the world. And by becoming the sin of the world, God's wrath that was deserved by all sinners was actually poured out on the sin of the world, on Christ, on that cross. So he was feeling the full weight of that. The Bible even tells us that because Jesus took on our sin and became sin, And the punishment for our sin, if we have faith in Christ, was settled and justified when God poured his wrath out on that cross. That because of that, those of us who know Christ and are forgiven will never come to know the wrath of God for the punishment of that sin. That's pretty significant. You know, often criminals, when they were crucified, they would nail a list to the cross and that list would lay out all of the crimes that they had committed and that they had been justly sentenced for Paul tells us in Colossians that when Jesus finished the work on the cross oh my God think about this it says that he nailed the handwriting requirements of the law to that cross And I'm telling you today that it's still nailed back there on that cross. Your sin and my sin. John says he died for the sins of the entire world. You may have noticed when you came in today or last week over to the side by our overflow space. Over in that area there's this giant cross with all kinds of words. Of all kinds of different sin. Everything that we could ever do or have ever done, Jesus paid the price for us to be forgiven of that. We need to know that those crimes have been nailed to a cross and it's been settled and we've been justified. We come into the experience of that forgiveness and that freedom by faith alone in the truth that Jesus was who he said he was. You see, for us to truly receive the forgiveness that God wants to give, we have to repent. And in order for a person to repent, which means, I'm sorry in a godly way, forgive me, then they have to be willing to acknowledge their sin through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that he helps us to see that we are all born into the world with sin and we need a Savior. Does that make sense? We must see the guilt of our sin before we can turn away from it. The fifth statement, John number 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. I thirst. I think one of the reasons why this is included for us to see in scripture is that it's important that we recognize and appreciate the humanity of Jesus. You see, he was fully God, but he was fully Man, And so he actually suffered, he actually experienced, he actually took on all of the punishment and weight of everything that he endured. is isn't like he circumvented or avoided or kind of dodged it because he was divine. Let me just lessen the pain a little bit. We've got to peer into the humanity of Jesus because the author of Hebrews tells us that we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, that he was tempted in all things, even as we are or would be, yet he was without sin. You see, folks, he overcame sin in the flesh so that he could be qualified to be the spotless lamb that would be the appropriate sacrifice for our atonement forever. Hmm, I thirst. There's even a moment where the soldiers try to offer him wine. And in Matthew's version, it says that it was mixed with myrrh, which was essentially a way of saying, making it more potent. And they would do that to sort of take a little bit of the edge off for the criminals of the suffering. But Matthew tells us that when Jesus, when the myrrh and the... the, Sour wine touched his lips, and he knew what it was. He rejected it. (laughs) He took it all. He took it all. He wouldn't even let the myrrh dull his senses a little bit to take an easier way out. I don't know about you, but I... I get so challenged in that. I I think my flesh, so often when I come to challenges in my life, that my flesh at some point entertains the idea of what's the easy way out of this? Where's the least amount of pain or suffering? That's rarely the direction that God is leading us. (laughs) I just think it's really helpful to look back and realize today that Jesus took it all for me. That He was willing to suffer for me. And I think that part of the sign of a maturity of a believer is when their flesh wants to take the easy way out. Wants to get out of the fire. But they recognize That God is doing a deeper work. And so if he is up to something good, then I'll stay in the fire a little bit longer because the reward he has, I know, will be worth it. It's a sign of spiritual maturity. Statement number six. John 19, verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Possibly the three greatest words ever spoken. I don't know. It is finished. It speaks to the total efficacy of God's work nothing more needs to be done it's finished no righteous deeds can account for our salvation no great amount of works no impressive life of obedience and it's not to, to lessen the importance of these things it's just to say that none of those can save us The work that Jesus did on the cross when he said, it is finished. All of God's requirements for justification were done for you and me. The only thing left for us to do is now receive it by faith. And it also speaks to, and I know that it's not necessarily popular what I'm about to say in our culture today. It is considered by many to be offensive. But it is the fact that the saving grace of God, it is the fact that the way for us to enter into heaven, that that path, folks, it is singular. There are no other options. Jesus alone, and our faith in Him, is the only way to our forgiveness of sin to be washed clean so that we can enter into heaven after this life and be in the presence of God for all of eternity. He said, it is finished. Many other things and efforts have been made by people and civilizations for lots of years to try to reach God, to find God, to know God, get to heaven. And Jesus makes it clear there's one way. And when he did the work that he did, he said, and that way is done now. It's been completed. It is finished. The Bible says that he sat down at the right hand of God after it was done. And that those who have put their faith in Christ, he remembers their sin no more. And so if that work has been completed... And we have received forgiveness of our sin. Or perhaps the Lord's working on your heart right now. And you're going to ask Him for that before you leave today. I just want to encourage you with this. That once it's been done, it's been done. Satan is the accuser. And what he would love to accuse and do is to make you think or someone think that even though they've went to Jesus for forgiveness of their sin, that it's really still there. That they're really still carrying it around and the byproduct of believing that lie, folks, and I see unfortunately so many that do this in our world is they live a life weighted and buried down by shame and condemnation. Shame and condemnation could be said as thinking and believing, this is in one regard, that you're carrying around sin still that God has already forgiven you for. It's so important that we know that the work of Jesus on the cross was complete. There was nothing else that would need to be done after that. At that moment, when Jesus said, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit, it had been dark from the 6th to the ninth hour over the land, which is from noon to 3 p.m., so he was hanging on that cross during those hours of noon to 3 while it was dark, and uh, when he breathed his last and said, it is finished, the ground shook. There was a massive earthquake in Israel. It says that the veil in the temple was tore from two, tore in two, from top to bottom, which historians and scholars say would be impossible, even with herds of horses tied to it, trying to tear it. It was so thick and so layered in tapestry. Yet in a moment. Whew, It was ripped in half. What is the significance of that? You might ask. That veil created a separation. Between the presence of God that rested over the Ark of the Covenant. In the place that was the Holy of Holies. That no man other than the high priest once a year could ever even enter. That fullness of God's presence in the temple. And that veil was separating men. From that place, because if they would go in, they would die. <laughs> Yet when Jesus said it was finished, it was finished, baby, because he tore that veil wide open and he said, Now, my presence will live inside the temples of human bodies of those who will confess me as Lord and Savior and now that separation will be removed and you can be restored back to relationship with me nearness and intimacy and closeness with me and Jesus becomes our high priest and intercessor and mediator there would be no need for a human high priest to give us access to Jesus anymore and he said it is finished you better believe it was finished and one of the soldiers looking on (laughs) when the earth was quaking and shaking said truly this was the son of God you think (laughs) I mean (laughs) took shaking the earth and breaking it open to get their attention But eventually, every eye will see, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But where our vantage point at that time comes from entirely depends on whether we've received or rejected Jesus Christ. You see, that's why the message of the gospel is so urgent That's why it is so necessary and that's why there can be no compromise with it. Because eternity truly does hang in the balance for the ears of those who may hear it. Satan's greatest effort to wreak havoc on God's people by killing Jesus. Think about this. His master plan To kill the Son of God once and for all. He was convinced he had everything right where he wanted it. Oh, isn't it just like God to throw a huge exclamation point on something. When we look at this and we say, Satan's greatest attempt to destroy what God wanted to do, actually Jesus used for the greatest victory and blow that's ever been dealt. I just want to encourage you today, folks. I can't tell you how, but I can tell you that he surely can. Whatever it is that's going on in your life, that the enemy is intending for harm, for damage, for havoc, for destruction, that God absolutely can, and if you walk in faith, will turn that around to be your greatest victory as well. He is that powerful the seventh and final statement we'll go to Luke 23 verse 46 and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice he said father into your hands I commit my spirit Hmm. having said this he breathed his last Matthew says, he yielded up his spirit. A voluntary laying down. Hmm. This is really important because we've got to grasp that even though those soldiers and the influence of Herod and all those haters, may have put him on that cross and did all that. That no one took Jesus' life from him without his full consent. (laughs) They didn't overpower him. They didn't take it from him. He gave it completely freely and willingly you probably remember a moment when jesus was praying before he would go to the cross where he prayed to the father father take this cup from me nevertheless not my will but yours This is what total surrender looks like. It looks like God's will trumps my will. Every time. (laughs) He yielded it and gave it up. One of the soldiers looked on and a moment before he died, he said, If he's really the son of God... Let him just come down off of that cross and save himself. If he really is who he says he is and he's got all that power, this should be easy for him. An effort to tempt Jesus, to circumvent what God was doing, to try to demonstrate his power or make them believe by seeing something. Hmm. I love this because it shows me that Jesus really understands and knows who's in complete control. (laughs) He knows who really has the power. And it does not dissuade him from going all the way. A moment when he was before Pilate. And Pilate said, don't you understand I have the ability to save your life or to take it from you? And you're not talking to me? You're not answering my questions? And Jesus' response was, you have no authority over me except, one, except what has already been granted to you. I, I'm going to some effort to paint this particular picture, folks, as we close out today, because I really want you to understand that if you're going to walk with Jesus, if you're going to follow Him, you're going to face some hard things. You're going to come into some difficult situations and some very difficult paths, and there's going to be some things that are going to come against you, and they're going to even tempt you to try to take you outside of where God's path is really leading you down. Oh, you know, show yourself, make me believe, or, you know, tempt you to try to go a different direction it's something, but we've got to know in our heart that God's way is always the only way, and as long as we follow Him and His path, He is always in control, and everything will always be working out for our good. <sighs> he is fully secure, and He is unthreatened by man. May it be said of our lives as well. That we fear no man. That we will walk with Jesus. Follow his path. No matter where it takes us. Or no matter what or who. May come against us. Because greater is he who is in us. Than he who is in the world. Hmm. And so the resurrection. We know comes the three days later. And Jesus defeats the grave conquers death it's because he defeated the grave and conquered death I can only imagine what Satan was thinking then that didn't work out the way I thought it would (laughs) but this is this is our hope (laughs) this is our hope This life right now that you and I live, that for all of us will end one day here in the physical, that for those who are in Christ, this isn't it. It's not over, it's not done. The greatest is really still yet to come. And when you know that, you live differently. When the grave does not scare you, when death cannot intimidate you, then you can live with a boldness, a courage, and a faith to go after and take risks and put yourself out there for anything and everything that God might have for you while you're here in this life. It says, O death, Where is your sting? Oh, Hades or hell, where is your victory? He conquered the grave so that those of us who put our faith in him could conquer the grave as well. Let me say it another way. If you know Christ, you're going to live forever. Hmm. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And that's great news. That's great news. Bible makes it clear that Jesus is coming back again one day. He's coming back for his church. And that when he returns, the saints will all rule with him over a restored earth. It's really big to try to comprehend that. But there is a faith and a trust that continues to grow in my heart throughout my days, that no matter how good it is here, that really the best is still yet to come. Amen. 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 Let me encourage you with this last thing. Knowing that you would be in eternity with Jesus. Those of your loved ones who've gone on before you, those who may come after you, I'm going to see him again. Amen. You're going to see him again. It'll be the greatest family reunion the universe has ever known. Amen. So, closing question Where are you at with Jesus? You on the fence? Have you received him? up until this point have you denied him more importantly what will you do now